Christchurch, New Alden, 9th of February 2020, 11 o'clock service. Nathan Larkin speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, The Covenant and the Church. A man once visited his doctor and he complained, uh, look, I don't really know if this is the kind of thing that you could help me with, but lately I've been misbehaving. I've been doing all sorts of things that I shouldn't, and I'm having real problems living with my conscience. So let me get this straight, the doctor replied. You've been doing all these things that you shouldn't, and you want me to give you something that will help strengthen your willpower? Uh, Not exactly, said the man. I was thinking more something that might help me to weaken my conscience. In this chapter that we've just heard read in Romans 14, the Apostle Paul is dealing with all things mattering Christian conscience, all things Christian conscience and and personal convictions, especially as they relate to the relationships of church members who don't necessarily agree on what's right and wrong all the time. Paul's prescription in this chapter is far from the one requested by the man in that story. But at the same time, he doesn't praise the overly sensitive conscience of some, nor does he condemn it. He accepts that Christians, where they are in their journey in faith, he accepts them there. And he pleads with us to do the same. Now, we know from both the book of Acts and from our journey through Romans so far, that this church in Rome was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But that at one point, the Roman emperor, Claudius, had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return again. But when they did, they found that in their absence, the church had become very non-Jewish in its customs and its practices. And so this created a lot of tension. So that by the time Paul is writing to the Roman church, it was really quite divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Romans as he wanted this divided church to become unified. And these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out this, his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the Bible makes it really clear that one day it is God's ultimate plan to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth, under the banner of Christ. But if this is the case, then it must also be true that one of the devil's greatest objectives is to produce division. And that's why so many of Paul's writings have the aim of unity. Galatians, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Romans all revolve around themes of unity, specifically in regard to this Jew-Gentile issue. Now, we today are probably aware of divisions among other churches, divisions we have amongst ourselves. We're, We're all too aware that this happens. These divisions swirl around us. But we need to remember that our generation is not unique in having those. From the beginning of the church, division has been a great enemy of the church. And at least one of the reasons that Paul wrote so many of these letters to these early Jesus communities. In each letter, Paul uses slightly different tactics based on the situation to deal with the disunity between fellow believers. 
I once heard uh, a guy called Ray Steadman once said that um, the favourite indoor sport of Christians is trying to change each other. And I think this passage indicates that this has been a major problem in the church for centuries. All through the history of the church, the problem arises from this attitude that I think we all can fall foul of at times. You know, we may think that, you know, I'm sure God is clearly pleased with the way I live, but there are these others around. They do this and they do that. They drink beer and they play cards. They play sport on a Sunday. They dress differently. They remarry after divorce. They work on Sundays. They dance. They play musical instruments. They use zippers instead of buttons. I find that hard to believe, but apparently that was something the church debated at one stage. It gets ridiculous. But there is an endless and sometimes hilarious list of things that throughout history the church has debated. And some of these are matters that the church has never been able to settle and probably never will, mainly because of a misunderstanding of the principles that are set forth here in this very passage we're looking at today. We're dealing, of course, with the problem of Christian taboos, all the no-nos of the Christian life that we encounter from place to place and from time to time. We're facing this question of how much fellowship you can have with someone who lives in a different way than you do, who does things that you don't completely approve of as a Christian. And this is the problem of Christian ethics, the problem of so-called legalistic behaviour, and this passage is a really quite extensive one, which indicates the extent of the problem. And the passage runs all the way through chapter 14, as we heard, and into the beginning of chapter 15. But I think the first thing that's really important for us to note is that this whole section dealing with this problem of disunity is part of an extended commentary of the Apostle Paul on the command of Jesus to love one another. That's there at the heart of it. This is part of how you love one another. And this has been the subject ever since the Apostle turned uh, in, in chapter 12 to the more practical part of his letter. We've been hearing each week about what it should look like for us, the church, to be inheritors of God's covenant. And the overriding theme is that one way or another, we must be marked by our love for one another, even, or maybe even especially, when it's hard for us to love each other. At the end of the previous chapter 13, um, Paul tells us that this love must be universal. We owe it to love everyone without exception. It says, owe no one anything but to love one another. That's a universal debt that we must continually be paying to everyone we meet. And now here in chapter 14, we learn that love means we must be patient and tolerant of other people's views. Chapter 14 begins with our actions towards someone whom perhaps we regard as less enlightened than ourselves. Now, when I say less enlightened than ourselves, let's think about who that brings to your mind for a moment, and then listen to what Paul says to do about it. He says, accept those who are weak in the faith without passing judgment on debatable matters. Now, it can't be much clearer than that, really. Do not reject them. Do not ignore them. Do not treat them in a second-class way. Accept them, but not so that you can argue with them later. Don't accept them in order to debate with them, but without passing judgment on debatable matters. 
Now that is hard. I, I get that is easier said than done. That doesn't always come that naturally to us. When we encounter someone who we disagree with, what's our first thought? What is our greatest hope for that relationship? Is it to correct them, to make sure that they get things right and everything they believe is lined up with what we believe? Or is it to look for some common ground, to see unity and love as more important than small or sometimes even large differences? Paul's hope was that those who had issues with each other would instead pursue what makes for peace and mutual growth. So how do we start? That's quite a challenge. Well, the first thing is to accept them. Of course, that means that regardless of where you may struggle with someone and what you may struggle about, you must first accept that they are brothers and sisters in the family of God. You didn't make them a part of the family, God did. So you're to accept them because they are your brothers and sisters. I may have mentioned before, I'm sure I have, but I I grew up in a church that was very confident that they were right about almost everything. And the unfortunate thing about that was that most other people who called themselves Christian were really to be considered, if we're honest, dodgy at best. We drew a very sort of thick line around who was one of us and who wasn't. And sadly, there were many, and with hindsight, mainly cultural hurdles that people had to overcome in order to be considered real members of God's family. People needed to talk the right way, dress the right way on a Sunday, live the right way, marry the right way, pray the right way, sing the right way, before they could in any way be considered proper Christians. Now, I know that mine was a pretty extreme example, but having journeyed from that judgmental and divisive place in my life to where I am today, I really want to challenge all of us this morning to consider what hurdles we might be putting up for people. What threshold have we decided people need to cross before we think of them as sound Christians? Are you generous in your judgment? Paul goes on in verse 2 to define more precisely the area that the Roman church are debating. Um, He says this, he says, One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So is Paul saying that veganism is for the weak? Of, Of course, he isn't dealing with nutrition here. This arises out of the background of the early church, in which there was a real moral question about eating meat. Not only were there Jewish restrictions against certain forms of meat, Jews didn't eat pork, for example, and and even beef and lamb had to be kosher. You know, it had to be killed in a certain way. So a Jew, or even someone who'd been raised as a Jew, and after then became a Christian, would often have great emotional difficulty in eating meat. I sometimes wonder, you know, this is just a bit of an aside, but I wonder what the Apostle Paul's reaction was when he first, after his conversion, was handed a bacon sandwich, something he'd for his entire life been told not to touch. But then there's this problem in Rome as well, of, and in other Greek and, and, and pagan uh, cities, of, about the matter of eating meat that had also been offered to idols. Some Christians said that if you did that, it was tantamount to worshipping that idol. You were no different than the people who worshipped and believed in the idol. And therefore, it placed a stigma on your faith to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Other Christians said, how can that be? Meat is just meat. 
The fact that someone else thinks of it as offered to idols doesn't mean that I have to. You're giving it too much power. And you know, as in every area where dispute arises like this, you know, there was two main viewpoints. There was a more liberal, broad viewpoint taken by the general or the Gentile Christian converts. And they said it was perfectly all right to do this. And then there was a stricter, sort of narrower viewpoint adopted by the Jewish Christians that said it was wrong to do this. What I think is really important for us to see in this passage is that the truth is it really doesn't make any difference what it, what it is we're arguing about if it falls into this area, this debatable area, something about which scriptures themselves have left open to our interpretation. And yet time and time again, we see churches and relationships and families divided over issues like these. Sadly, we can put so many of the modern problems that we have with each other into this category. It's not definitive. Some of those things I already mentioned. But that doesn't mean that there aren't areas that scripture clearly speaks about that are not debatable. I mean, there are. It is always wrong to murder or to commit adultery. It is always wrong to be drunk. These things are clearly wrong. The Bible is fairly clear on that. In both the Old and New Testaments, God has spoken, God has judged in these areas. And Christians are encouraged to challenge and if necessary, even discipline one another according to patterns that scripture sets out. But let's be clear, that's not the type of disputes that we're talking about in Romans and and this morning. It's not about judging each other in those areas that we're talking about. There are all of these other areas that are left open. And I think that the amazing thing I've come to discover, and I think the significant thing here, is that scripture often leaves those open, deliberately. Paul will not give a yes or no answer about some of these things because God doesn't give a yes or no answer. There are areas, in other words, where God wants us to leave it up to the individual as to what he or she does. And as we see later on, he expects it to be based upon a deep conviction of that individual. But it is up to them. These are the areas that Paul's talking about here. Now, it might also be surprising to us that Paul calls what I've called, for want of a better word, the liberal or generous party, strong in the faith, while the narrow, more rigid party is regarded as being weak in the faith. Now, it's got nothing to do with strength or weakness of the individual's faith. It's not talking about someone whose faith is weak. It's talking about someone who is weak in the faith, which is different. The problem is doctrinal here. The problem is that they haven't come to understand the breadth and generosity of God's truth that's revealed in Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself said, if anyone continue in my word, he shall be my disciple. He shall be my disciple indeed, and he shall know the truth, and the truth will set him free. The mark for understanding truth is freedom. It's liberty. And that's why Paul calls the person who understands that they're now free from some of those laws and previous Jewish requirements, he calls them strong in faith. While those who are more rigid and who are desperate to cling on to rules and limitations are clearly weak in the faith to him. It's the problem of a Christian who's not yet understanding fully the freedom that Christ has brought us. 
someone who struggles with these kinds of things and who feels limited in their ability to take part in and to indulge in some of these things while others feel free to do so. Every church has people and will have people that fall into these two different categories. I'm sure we have them here. Paul puts his finger precisely though on these natural attitudes which each group will have towards each other and says, even though you are different, even though some of you are very clear you don't want anything to do with that and others feel that it's okay to, you need to be careful how you treat each other. He says in verse three, the one that eats everything must not look down on those who do not. And that's the first thing. In other words, the strong must not reject the one who is still struggling. It means they mustn't think about them in a condescending or scornful way. They mustn't let themselves look down on these people. Perhaps you find it frustrating. Perhaps you're frustrated with people that you find narrow and rigid in their faith. Perhaps you find them judgmental. Well, don't fall into the trap of judging them. Someone wants to find a legalist as someone who lives in mortal terror that someone somewhere is enjoying themselves. Now, that may be funny, but, but really, we need to be careful. We shouldn't think about people that way. We're not to exclude these people because we're different. We shouldn't form little cliques within the church that shut out people from social fellowship with other people who have different viewpoints. We mustn't think of our group as being set free while this other group of theirs is very narrow and we don't want anything to do with them. This is wrong. Paul clearly says so. In fact, he implies that if any of the so-called strong um, exclude weaker brothers, look down on them, treat them as though they're second-class Christians, then they've simply proved that they're just as weak as the ones that they're being uh, looking down on. Strength in the faith means more than understanding truth. It means living in a loving way with those who we disagree with. The truly strong in the faith will never put down those who are still growing. On the other hand, the apostle continues, the one who does not eat everything must not condemn the one who does, for God has accepted him. Here's the flip side of it. Those who struggle to break free from a narrower view of God's grace, those who see their faith as a long list of do's and don'ts, must also not look down on those who have freedom in these areas. Those who think it's morally wrong, for example, for a Christian to drink wine or beer, must not look down on those who feel free to do so. They shouldn't judge them. What's happened often in churches is that those who Paul in this passage calls weak in the faith, i.e. those who haven't fully grasped that freedom that we have in Christ, they're often the majority party. And they often make artificial standards for Christians and impose them on everybody who comes into the church. With the implication that you really cannot be a Christian unless you do all of these things or you do not do those things. The world, when this happens, gets a totally false idea of what church is all about. Unity doesn't come into it. And this has happened widely. I think for the most part, the narrow party has triumphed in evangelical churches. But this is why so many people will not touch the church with a 25-foot pole. Even though they may be interested in Jesus, they see church as divided, as judgmental, as having imposed standards and rules of conduct that actually have very little to do with scriptures. 
These are artificial regulations that only the church has brought about. What Paul goes on to say in the next few verses is that God can read hearts and we can't. These distinctions and differences of viewpoint, they'll often come out of honest conviction, which God sees even though we can't. So the person you're disagreeing with isn't simply being difficult just because they don't agree with you. They're most likely acting on the basis of what they really feel is right. So why shouldn't we give them the benefit of the doubt on that? Let's believe that they are as intent on being real before God and true to him as you are. And if they feel able to take part in some of these things that you think is not right, then at least see them as doing so because they really feel that God is not displeased with them on that basis. Or on the other hand, if they really do feel limited and they feel that they shouldn't do certain things, don't get upset with them because they see things differently to you. Remember that they really feel that God would be displeased if they did those things. And it's an honest conviction. The apostle makes clear that every person should have that kind of conviction if they act that way. He says, let everyone be fully persuaded in their own heart. So let's not just act from tradition because we've been brought up that way or we always did it that way, or because you just feel it's right. Let's find some reason for it in scripture. Let's look for an explanation from the word of God. Perhaps we'll change our minds as our understanding of truth develops but at least let it be on the ground of a conviction of the heart and the mind. So if that's what's not to do, don't judge, don't criticize, then how are we to treat those who are different from us? Well, I've always appreciated that scripture is, is never only negative. It never says do not do something without suggesting a positive action to take its place. And in verse 15, Paul says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. It's not loving to force people to move at our pace, even if I happen to be right. To understand where they're coming from, to adjust to their pace, to meet them where they are, and walk together towards Christ, is surely one of the clearest and truest demonstrations of Christian love. And that's what Paul is urging us to do here. If you're going to create division by arguing so hard for your way, then you're distorting the gospel itself. Paul actually uses the word blaspheme. It's really strong. He says, you're causing that which is good, he says, the good news about Christ to be blasphemed because you're making too much of an issue over a minor matter. You're insisting that your rights are so important that you have to divide the church over them to separate from a brother or sister who doesn't believe the same thing as you do. I heard this awful story about a church some time ago that got into this unholy argument about whether or not they should have a Christmas tree at their Christmas service. Some thought that a tree was fine. Others thought that it was a pagan practice and had no place in the church. One group dragged the tree out of the church. Then the other group dragged it back in. Eventually, they got so angry with each other that they ended up getting into a fist fight over it. Now, of course, this whole thing spread in the local newspapers for the entire community to read. And let's be honest, what else would non-Christians assume other than the gospel must be about whether or not you have a Christmas tree? 
I mean, they made such an important issue over it that they were ready to physically attack each other. Paul says that is utterly wrong. The main point of the Christian faith is not eating or drinking or Christmas trees or many of these small matters that we fall out over. The main point is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. A non-Christian looking at the church should see these things first. Not squabbling and bickering and fighting, but love and unity. It says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Peace is the work of God. Nothing can produce lasting peace amongst people, especially those of different cultural backgrounds, except the work of God. It's the Spirit of God who produces peace. So if for the sake of some view that you have, you destroy that peace, you're destroying what God has brought about. Don't do that. It's not worth it. Sometimes it's important for us to air our differences. I mean, it's better that that we don't bottle it all up. But be sure that you are not acting out of pride or even self-indulgence. Only when we have a deep conviction that rests upon Scripture and always, always in love with Christian unity as the aim. What will happen then in the eyes of the watching world? Then Christians will be seen to be free people, people who are united in love, people who can disagree well, a skill that is so needed in our world today. These are really wise words of Paul. And properly followed, they will gradually work out the differences of viewpoints that we have. But if they're ignored, the church is bound to go along with one side or the other. It tends to go that way. And division and anger and upset will follow. And the whole cause of Christ will be injured by that. So as we finish, where do we look for an example of this sacrificial unifying love? Well, at the start of the next chapter, 15, Paul urges us to look no further than to look at Jesus himself. Jesus ran into this kind of problem himself. Even though he was perfect, even though he never did anything that was wrong or out of line, people still had a problem with him. People still took issue with him. As Paul says, Jesus fulfilled scriptures that predicted that those who did not like God's methods would take it out on Jesus. The insults of those who insult you, he says, have fallen on me. And so he had to bear with all the unhappiness and sometimes the insults of those who just could not be pleased, even with God, what God himself was doing. And there's a few stories that illustrate it. You know, remember in, in Luke chapter 14, the Pharisees felt that Jesus was not keeping the Sabbath properly. They were very upset because he did things they felt were wrong to do on the Sabbath. Now, what's Jesus' example here? What did he do? Did he give in to their critique and their desire? Well, actually, no, on this occasion, he didn't. He actually ignored their protest and went ahead and did the things that upset them even more, which is, which is different than Paul is describing. But he felt that if he had gone along with their desires, they would have never learned what God intended the Sabbath to be. So on this occasion, he didn't just adhere uh, or adjust to their antagonism. But yet, on other occasions, Jesus was accused of things like not paying taxes. When the disciples told him about this, he sent Peter around to the lake to catch a fish. 
And in the fish's mouth, he would find a coin sufficient to pay the tax for both Peter and himself. And Jesus said he did this in order not to offend them. That is, he adjusted to their complaint at that point. And if you think that we have difficulty in deciding how to respond to criticism and and others' expectations of us, then we should remember that Jesus himself seemingly had difficulty with this. But yet there's still a third occasion when he publicly acknowledged that there is no way to please everybody all the time. Jesus said, when John the Baptist came to you, he came neither eating nor drinking. And that doesn't mean that John didn't eat food. It means probably that he, he observed careful dietary restrictions. He was probably a Nazarite and had taken a vow never to touch any sort of alcoholic beverage. So Jesus, when John came, Jesus says, when John came, neither eating nor drinking, you said of him, he has a demon. But when I came, both eating and drinking, you call me a glutton and a drunkard. So how can I please you? Jesus simply recognized the impossibility at times of accommodating everybody. So he went ahead and did what God had sent him to do, and he let God take care of the rest. He was gracious at all times. We can only keep ourselves right. It's our job to have a good look at ourselves and to decide if love and unity and God's hope for the world are the major influences in our actions and in our words and our lives. Or perhaps none of us being the finished article means we all have a little more work to do on this. But what Paul is really saying is that no matter what our differences are, we don't need to separate. We don't need to split. We don't need to fight. We don't need to sue one another. We don't need to give up. We can work the problems out. Because there is hope that just as Jesus unified the Jews and the Gentiles that we too may be one people. And when we are one people, God is honored and glorified. And that's what it looks like to be his covenant people.